When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible offers more than 150,000 audiobooks, all available for listening on your smartphone, tablet, and desktop. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 11th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about Michael Sam's long wait to get picked in the NFL draft, whether his sexual orientation made him slide down teams' draft boards, and the reactions to his celebratory kiss. We'll also discuss big comebacks, Kevin Durant's emotional MVP speech, the Oklahoma City Thunder's supposed coaching woes and other NBA playoffs items of interest, and finally, we'll be joined by Slate's editorial director, John Swansberg, a man who confesses to owning the weirdo running glove toe shoe things known as Vibram Five Fingers, the footwear that was the subject of a class action lawsuit alleging that Vibram made false and unsubstantiated claims about the health benefits of its shoes. If you're willing to call them shoes, Stefan, if you're willing to go that far. I'm joined in Washington, D.C. by a man whose opinions about shoes. Footwear. We- are waiting to hear. Uh, it's Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak in a Few Seconds of Panic, the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. How are you, Stefan? I'm well. And with us in New York, it's Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike mm. Pesca. Mm-hmm. I've, I've forgotten to introduce uh, Mike Pesca's podcast as The Gist with Mike Pesca. Mm-hmm. That's, that's you, your you should do that now that you're with Mike Pesca. Now that I'm with Mike Pesca, I want to introduce the slate with Mike Pesca. The gist with Mike Pesca. Ah, oh, shit. I got it wrong. 
<laughs> we got to keep that in. I was looking for your podcast on iTunes. And? I, don't, I don't know if you've had this experience where one of the first things that comes up is Crochet Cast by Jeannie Gist. Oh, wow. It hasn't updated since 2007, but I still think you need to have her on The Gist with Jeannie Gist and Mike Pesca. Oh, and then there's another one called The Gist, which uh, stopped in 2011. That's about contemporary Christian issues. I think we have a Gist Fest, a Gist Summit. All Gist. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> Crochet Christianity at Al. I think uh, there's concern. The Al. There's concern that you're going to succumb to the Gist curse. Right. The weird thing is a large percentage of the show was meant to be about crocheting, but now I maybe have to <laughs> see that area. Well, crocheting Christian iconography, specifically. Former Maryland basketball player James Gist could also be a guest on the Gist, Gist cast. Right. Just throwing, now, just, I'm not Josh, a poker, just throwing things out there. Josh, when you were trying to find the Gist and you came across these other things, did some of the methods you use on iTunes not include look at the new and noteworthy podcast right at the top, <laughs> not looking at the number one overall news podcast, not looking at the top ten podcasts uh, overall? These weren't avenues you pursued. Is this the end of uh, the commercial for the Gist with Mike Pesca? <laughs> uh, let's start our podcast. On Thursday, ESPN got huge ratings for the NFL draft, or huge ratings, huge. depending on, on your perspective. Uh, mm -hmm. When Johnny Manziel fell to the 22nd pick of the first round, on Saturday, everyone was tuning in because Missouri defensive end Michael Sam fell a whole lot further. The St. Louis Rams finally selected Sam with the 249th pick. So if you are watching, it feels more accurate to call it the eighth to last pick in the 2014 draft. For a very long time, it looked like the SEC Defensive Player of the Year was not going to be selected. ESPN's draft analysts explained at great length that this was for so-called football reasons. Sam wasn't big enough. He wasn't fast enough. He tested terribly at the NFL Scouting Combine. Once Sam's name was called, there was a tonal 180 with the network celebrating the historic moment. For his part, Sam was overwhelmed and relieved, seen bursting into tears and kissing his boyfriend in footage shown by ESPN. Stefan, what did you make of Sam's draft position and ESPN's coverage of the draft? I find it extremely hard to believe that there weren't multiple NFL teams that chose not to select Michael Sam because of the fact that he is gay. I think that teams factor in this imagined fear of, not imagined fear, fear of imaginary distractions. I think the thing that a lot of people didn't take into account was, as you wrote on Slate after Jason Collins came out, that it wasn't a distraction, that this blows over incredibly quickly. The difference in football from a media perspective, it's sort of a once you comes to town, you know, in visiting cities, people are going to write about it. The local press is going to cover it as a national story. This is going to go away. Football is a little different. Training camp lasts for a month. There is daily scrutiny. Local reporters don't have a lot to write about during training camp. It's a it's a time of manufactured stories and profiles and speculation. But the the reality is that unless something insane happened inside this organization, a revolt by some players, some sort of inappropriate comments, something to feed the story, I think that this is not going to be a big issue. And then once again, as with Collins, we're going to be saying, what was the big deal? Well, you guys can tell me if I'm wrong or why I'm wrong. but And maybe it's just because I've had this drummed into my head over and over again that Sam is a tweener, that he is not a great prospect. And that Sentiment has changed a little bit since he first announced he was coming out. We were told back then that he was a fourth-round pick and then later became a sixth-round pick. Maybe he wouldn't be drafted. But as I was reading about this and watching the draft, it started to strike me that it actually wouldn't have been that surprising if Sam wasn't drafted. Not at all for um, 
you know, reasons of his sexual orientation. There were 37 players rated higher than Sam by scouts and ESPN that were not picked in the draft. Um, The highest one was their number 89 player, Brandon Coleman, a wide receiver at Rutgers. Sam was ranked 224th. A bunch of other SEC players, Marcus Roberson of Florida was 101st, Antonio Richardson, Adrian Hubbard of Alabama. And then there is Jackson Jeffcoat, who is 106th, first-team All-American from Texas, had 13 sacks more than Sam, has the bloodlines. His dad was in the NFL for a really long time. Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year. Everyone was making the case, oh, well, Sam's the SEC Defensive Player of the Year. How can you not pick the SEC Defensive Player of the Year? Jeff Coat did better in everything at the Combine than Michael Sam did, and he was not drafted. Yeah. If Michael Sam were just random, well, it wouldn't be random, were SEC Defensive Player of the Year with his resume, we wouldn't be paying attention. But if we really were paying attention, we probably wouldn't be that shocked. Players who put together really good college careers and are lauded in power conferences, sometimes this happens to. And so before it was ever revealed that he was gay, before he came out, I saw him as a you know fifth-round pick or sixth-round pick. That's what he was being uh, discussed as. And he had a really bad combine. So you add all that up, and he gets drafted in the seventh round. Like, that's not a headline. And there does seem to be, especially, you know, when we were going over the stories of uh, all these gay players who couldn't get signed, you know, I don't know if it's real. I don't know if we're using some sort of psychological crutch in picking apart, you know, other explanations other than discrimination, why they're not hired. And I certainly believe that teams have this perception. We, we heard all those anonymous quotes about teams saying, I don't want this distraction. And then we've kind of, as a group, exploded that myth. But yeah, I do think that not only can you not prove that uh, he was discriminated against, where he went is sort of in keeping with his resume. But saying all that, I don't think it matters now. I think that the Rams are not going to look at him like they look at the guy who was seventh to last in the draft. They're going to look at him as a guy that they really want to do everything they can to keep on the team if things go right. You know, if if he's at all a uh, positive contributor, he played at Missouri, they're in Missouri, they could get a lot of credibility if they have him on the team and if he's a positive contributor. So if what we're really focused on is, you know, his future going forward, I think he has a bright one. I was a little perplexed by, and this might just be the football talk, that immediately the reaction is that, well, they've already got two great defensive ends. I mean, football, there are 53 players on football teams. There are defensive ends and tweeners like Michael Sam who do extremely well on special teams. I think to sort of pigeonhole him as, oh, well, he's not going to play a lot or he's only going to play in third down pass rush situations is kind of silly just from a from a football analytical perspective. If they do want to turn him into a linebacker, someone who has mobility, someone who can get down the field, he's going to play special teams. So if he is a contributor, he's going to contribute in other ways. And I think that the analysis of Michael Sam, probably similar to the analysis of Jackson Jeffcoat, you know, also a tweener, only six foot three, only 240 something pounds. He was signed by the Seahawks, by the way, uh, immediately after the draft, as were dozens of other free agents. Those are ways of talking about what happens to these players, but they don't really factor in the, the reality that there are so many guys on an NFL roster that there are multiple roles that they can play. And we can't say that, you know, him being gay or coming out factored in or didn't factor in. So I'm just trying to push back at people who say, sure. obviously, he fell uh, because he's gay or I, obviously I'm, he didn't. But there were um, teams who I'm sure factored it in that way, Josh. 
Sure, but it only takes one team to to pick you. Correct. And Jeff Fisher, in his comments, seemed like he was incredibly progressive about the whole thing, that he actually did factor in the reality of Michael Sam's sexual orientation and wanted to make this pick. I mean, he referenced the first black player that the Rams signed in the 1940s. Um, his GM is a younger guy. Looks like he's in his 30s. You know, this, this looks like from all fronts, this is a progressive organization that is going to take the fact that there is the first openly gay player on their roster quite seriously. I also just wanted to push back against the idea that the fact that Sam dropped and people's evaluations was because he came out. You know, first of all, every team in the NFL, it seems, already knew that he was gay before he came out. So this all could have factored in even if he had decided not to make an announcement. But, you know, a lot of evaluations of players, probably evaluations of every player change dramatically from, you know, February to uh, May. You know, A.J. McCarron thought he was going to be a first-round pick. Two-time national champion went in the fifth round. A lot of guys who thought they were going to be First round picks um, before the 2013 season, like a couple cornerbacks from Florida, weren't drafted at all. Um, these are normal fluctuations. And I don't want to say that the NFL's evaluation of Sam is correct. I mean, they could be downgrading him for stupid reasons, but I think it's at least consistent with the stupid reasons that they downgrade other players for. It's not like the NFL, like, the guy who goes number one is the best player and the guy who goes 256th is the 256th best player. They don't get this stuff right. You know, their hit percentage is not great. And Bill Roden in the Times this morning did the old, well, a kicker was picked before him and a punter was picked before him Uh, and this small linebacker was picked before him. Therefore, there was something untoward happening. Another thing is I think uh, ESPN weirdly, well, not weirdly, I understand how the human brain works. They were both criticized for being cheerleaders for the gay rights movement and also being anti-gay. What'd you say? So ESPN showed Sam kissing his boyfriend uh, once and then they showed him kissing him again when they were shoving celebratory cake into each other's faces. It was pretty awesome. And I was surprised that ESPN showed it at all in the first place. And they didn't have to. They didn't show Sam's reaction live. They had cameras there, but it was on tape. And they made the affirmative decision to put it on. And then, I, re- I read, however, that they ran the tape without knowing the full content, without okay. having viewed it. Okay, I didn't realize. And then I've heard sort of differing accounts. I was not watching ESPN 24-7, but it did seem like it was a conscious decision in the immediate aftermath of that, that the clip that they ran on all of their shows, on the draft coverage, on SportsCenter, whatever, the one that they chose to stand for this moment was the one of Sam crying, then hugging his boyfriend, not the kiss. NFL Network showed the kiss. I think ESPN might have showed it later on other programs, but the reaction that you saw on Twitter, the Dolphins cornerback who is fined and suspended by the team. All of this was due to the kiss. It wasn't due to Sam being drafted. And I think that shows kind of societal disconnect here. Um, Even if you're in favor of gay rights in theory, if you are happy about Michael Sam, I think a lot of people who play for the Miami Dolphins, maybe one person who plays for the Miami Dolphins, but just a lot of people on Twitter, like I don't ever block people on Twitter, but I had to block people who are just disgusted and outraged by seeing two men kiss each other on television, which is something that we don't see, especially not on ESPN. And so, you know, kudos to ESPN for showing it, you know, boo to ESPN for not showing it more is my opinion. You had to block people? People were coming at you? Yeah, because I said, well, I wrote a thing saying ESPN showed this and they didn't show it again. And people were writing back to me saying it's disgusting. You know, the same stuff that you would expect people to say who are homophobic when they see men kiss on television. 
Mm. I was actually surprised um, to see Sam being so public and kissing his boyfriend because I don't know if I said this um, before, but I've thought it for a long time that, you know, having an out gay man in pro sports is a certain step. But the way that, you know, the relationships with players and wives and girlfriends are depicted, it really surprised me. And I thought this would be like another barrier 10 years down the road to actually have a player be public in the same way that players in baseball, football, basketball are with their relationships. Um, I thought that, you know, a guy would come in the league and he would mind his own business and, you know, not be overt. You don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to be a distraction because this clearly was a distraction for a lot of people. So, you know, this was a barrier that I just didn't think we were going to cross this quickly. I'm glad that we did. And I'm also not that surprised that um, the reaction was what it was. And the Washington Post ran a like two or three thousand word profile of Ian Desmond and his wife and how and juggling being a baseball wife and a baseball family during the season. Can you imagine a similar piece written about an openly gay athlete and his partner's efforts to, to juggle their lives? I mean, that maybe that's the next step. Maybe the, the next step in the reality is just to acknowledge this and profile everybody. I just have no doubt exactly how this is going to play out because I've watched society and it plays out in every field in pretty much the same way. Like, wow, that was no big deal. So maybe there'll be some small instances of ugliness, but generally that was no big deal. All right. Our sponsor this week is Audible, the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. With our special offer, you can get one of Audible's more than 150,000 titles for free. Continuing with the listener picks, I've got Rich Thomas from the land of uh, Parts Unknown. He uh, is recommending I Wear the Black Hat, Grappling with Villains, Real and Imagined by Chuck Klosterman. It's unabridged. Rich notes that there's a nice section in the book about Joe Paterno. I think by nice, he means nicely written. Klosterman goes through different people who have been called villains and wants to understand the concept of villainy along with uh, Joe Paterno. You've got some Bernie Getz in there, OJ, and other Klostermany morsels of goodness. Uh, thanks to Audible's great offer for Hang Up listeners. If you're in the United States and you have never tried the Audible service before, you can get one free audiobook if you sign up for a free 30-day trial. Get that audiobook in the 30-day free trial by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. That's audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. In the NBA, the Los Angeles Clippers came back from a 16-point fourth quarter deficit on Sunday afternoon to beat the Oklahoma City Thunder by two points and even their Western Conference semifinal series at two games all in the East. The Wizards blew a 19-point deficit to lose to the Pacers by three. Indiana's now up three to one in that series. Blowing leads. There's just always so much, you know, sadness and vitriol. Shouldn't we be congratulating the Thunder for getting up to such a big lead in the first place? They basically won. In, in a certain sense, they won the yeah. first quarter by a lot of points. Uh, yeah. But Mike Pesca, you have some thoughts on uh, comebacks. There are some basketball leagues that count each quarter individually. And in many of those leagues, uh, currently some of them are bankrupt. The Thunder would have won the game. But in our league, where there's a cumulative score, they did not. It seemed like this game, yes, widely noted what the Thunder stopped doing was playing any sort of offense that rested on anything other than Kevin Durant getting the ball about two and a half steps beyond where Kevin Durant wants to get the ball, getting double teamed, and then not being able to do much with it. Uh, Russell Westbrook penetrated expertly. Pew, pew! 
he was pretty good. I don't know. Afterwards, Bill Simmons said Westbrook was making mistakes. To me, he was taking it to the hoop, going fast. But the fast guys on the other team were uncontainable, too. Collison, Paul, choop, choop. So it was all these fast guys darting through all these big guys, and the quick darters of the Clippers outdid the one quick darting Westbrook of the Thunder. And so what I think about all of this is it is correct to say that the Thunder needs to get a better offense because a couple more points would have uh, helped them win that game. But, you know, their defense was just ridiculous, ridiculously bad. They couldn't contain any of these speedy players on the Clippers, and therefore they lost the game. The Clippers played three guards for most of the fourth quarter with Danny Granger and Blake Griffin. And apparently they've never done that before, and yet they did it in game four of the Western Conference semifinals. And it worked. It's always great when you see, you know, when this happens in pro sports, when coaches do something completely unconventional to try to combat something that they feel like they can't contain. It's sort of like that desperation. All right, we might as well throw these three guys out there and see what happens. And it worked. Well, this is something that I think NBA coaches have realized over the last couple of years is that there's no rule requiring that you field a team that has players who fit the, you know, five supposed positions. You can play five guys who are six feet tall. You can play five guys who are seven feet tall. But for a long time, there was just a kind of uh, slavish devotion to these traditions and strictures of how you line up teams on the court. And now you see all sorts of combinations, which is fun to watch. Um, But what was really interesting about the fourth quarter of that game is that you had one coach, Doc Rivers, who made a very ostentatious coaching decision. And it wasn't only putting the three guards out there. It was having Chris Paul guard Kevin Durant. And there's nothing that's more noticeable um, than that just because of the height difference. And it's obviously you're doing something that's counterintuitive. You're doing something that will get noticed and will get talked about whether the result is positive or negative. In this case, it was very positive for the Clippers. Paul was not allowing Durant to dribble um, he because, you know, his hands are very low to the ground and Durant was not even able to post up on Paul. The announcers were saying, I think correctly, that little guys can take more liberties, you know, pushing and shoving just because the refs will take pity on them because they're not as big and strong as the big guys that they're going up against. And then on the other side, you had Scott Brooks of the Thunder. And, you know, we should talk about this, whether it's accurate or not. The perception is that he does not do anything, that basically what the Thunder's offense is, is... Just have Westbrook dribble a lot and then shoot a three-pointer, penetrate, or pass to Durant. There's no sense that they're running any sorts of plays. The coaching that's being done there, if it exists, is about the exact opposite of the Doc Rivers style of putting Paul and Durant. You can't detect it in any way. And so when the result is what it is, then the obvious storyline is going to be Scott Brooks can't coach, he doesn't coach, and Doc Rivers is a genius. So how fair is any or all of that? Are the Thunder good? The Thunder are quite good. Yeah. Are they a favorite to win the uh, NBA title? Yes, they are. Okay. Is Scott Brooks the coach? I mean, he didn't get in the way of this team that's an offensive juggernaut. And although everyone and after could always the games, be better, Mike. I guess. But although everyone after the game said, you know, this goes to a fundamental flaw of the Thunder, which is what you're saying, sometimes their offense stagnates. I think that you can get way too complicated when you have an offensive genius like Kevin Durant. And some of his genius is that he has, you know, six inches on guys who play his natural position. Okay, so there's the genius of height. I'm not saying that Brooks is a great coach, but if it's a choice between overcoaching and undercoaching, if we want to call it that, let Durant and let Westbrook and let that team make their plays. 
All the criticism of the Thunder was how stagnant they looked on offense. They gave up 38 points in that quarter. It was a defensive collapse. These things are almost always defensive collapses. And at times they couldn't get a shot, and that seemed really frustrating, and it seemed ostentatious when it was Durant, who did go four for five for the quarter, but did have a bunch of turnovers. You know, so when it was Durant not getting a shot, you know, maybe you pound the table and you say, this is the thing that's going wrong. But it's the fact that Collison just darted through the defense, and so did Chris Paul. But Mike, how how is Collison darting? He was darting... A lot of times because the Thunder were committing live ball turnovers because Durant was getting double teamed and also Chris Paul was snatching the ball away from them and they were getting runouts. I mean, it's they a were fluid also game. Getting, yeah, they were also got out hustled. I don't even understand how Collison got like six steps on the defense about the third to last basket. I mean, you know, is that the coach's fault? God, I think that that's a momentum play. Do you think Mark Cuban on Twitter was referring to Scott Brooks when he tweeted yesterday evening after the game how he was upset the TV commentators never say anything about bad coaching. Well, Zach Lowe, Zach Lowe has said, you know, he had Jeff Van Gundy on his podcast and will not ask Van Gundy about coaching because Van Gundy will not criticize any coaches. And I think for coaches that have become color commentators on TV, I think that's true. You know, you never hear Dick Vitale criticize a coach. I mean, he's the extreme example. But I think the, like, average, you know, or median NBA coach turned commentator is not going to be vicious when it comes to criticizing one of his uh, colleagues. I have heard, wait, which Van Gundy are we talking about? Jeff. Okay. So I have heard Jeff Van Gundy criticize a coach, only he doesn't do it like this. What Brooks has got to do, dot, 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 or this is the flaw of the coaches. But what he'll say is the offense is stagnant. They need to get Durant closer to the basket. Then, you know, he'll say things that are clearly without using a name. what the offense is. And then if you take a logical step and you say, all right, who's in charge of the offense? Well, there you go. Similarly, the Wizards collapse last night was a defensive one, too. And a lot of the common thing during and after the game was about their inexperience and John Wall sort of not taking over near the end of the game and not trusting his shot when he had an open three. Instead, he passed to Bradley Beal, who had a contested three. You know, is that coaching too? I mean, Randy Whitman, the coach of the Wizards during one of the breaks, specifically said, we're doing a terrible job on defense. We've allowed them to get back in this game. A coach with one of the all-time worst winning percentages in NBA history. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you coach the Minnesota Timberwolves during the years not entirely the Minnesota Timberwolves, it's not good, yeah. I would say that, um, I don't know if it's a bad coach, it does seem like the Wizards are a team that needs more coaching than the uh, Thunder do. And that, maybe that's just because the Thunder are constructed in a way where the pieces fit quite naturally. I think it's just, actually, I'll probably... Well, maybe it's because the Thunder have Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. Yeah, I think it's, you, you put Durant against Wall. I mean, Durant is, you feel so confident in him, and Wall, you get nervous. And that's the nature of the point guard position. That's the nature of what my perception is of both of their personalities away from the court and that's the nature of wall specific game so when you have a guy who's you know high variance like wall then you say to yourself you need coaching when you have a mr automatic like durant then you say they are coached it's just i mean they're obviously doing what the coach wants them to do and their their offense is how they want it to be it's not like they're not executing their offense i guess the criticism is you know how many wrinkles does the offense have? How many plays does the offense have? And it doesn't seem like the Thunder has that many plays. That said, play a little defense. Get back on defense and we wouldn't even be talking about this. Well, I think we also forget that the other team is trying to. It's the sort of... Yes. The, the, they're trying to, to do better than you. That's right. Yeah. So Kevin Durant's uh, MVP speech was lauded 
by everyone. Uh, the NBA turned it into a Mother's Day commercial. Instantly, let's hear a bit of uh, Durant's thoughts about his mom. You wake me up in the middle of the night in the summer times, making me run up a hill, making me do push-ups, screaming at me from the sideline of my games at eight or nine years old. We wasn't supposed to be here. You made us believe. You kept us off the street, put clothes on our backs, food on the table. When you didn't eat, you made sure we ate. You went to sleep hungry. You sacrificed for us. You the real MVP. So uh, Durant, I think, is liked by everyone in the league, fans, um, except for one Oklahoma, you know, headline writers would be perhaps an exception. What do we think about Durant's personal story, which he told? In this press conference, it's very familiar in a lot of ways, um, you know, the, the fact that he did have a tough upbringing, the fact that he saw basketball as a way out for himself and his family, the fact um, that it's so focused on hard work um, as opposed to him talking about how he's really tall, as Mike Pesco would maybe want him to do in his MVP speech. I would like to thank my height. So, yeah, this is very familiar in a lot of ways, and yet it's kind of singular and charming just because he seems so conscious of it. Right, Stefan? I think you're absolutely right. It's that he, you know, we, we've talked before about the manufacturing or the perceived manufacturing of Kevin Durant's image that he was the anti-LeBron during the decision that he wanted to be loyal to his team. Um, you know, LeBron has very- tattoos that are not visible to the <laughs> naked eye that are under his jersey. Right. And yet for all of that, I think part of this is just demeanor. Part of it is is how he carries himself in the appearances that we get to see that are not part of the game. And it's also how he carries himself during games. I mean, he is not an ostentatious player. He is not a player that directs attention to his accomplishments. He is someone that gives good press conferences, that he's engaging, he answers questions, he seems thoughtful, he seems to care, he seems to listen to the people that are talking to him. All of that adds up to creating a perception in our minds of an athlete that is genuine, And genuineness is the hardest thing for star athletes to come by. In in the case of someone like LeBron, he was so catered to and so scripted and so managed from a very, very young age that he came off appearing at the peak of his career, at this high point of his career as being completely disingenuous and unlikable. And Durant has never had to face that. Instead, he sort of parried that from a very young age. You know, he came into the league after one year in college, right? And, and LeBron, zero. Um, I mean, they both had to face this early, but Durant sort of quietly went about becoming a superstar. He did not carry himself with the aura that I am destined to be one of the greatest players in the history of the NBA. And I think that's how we come to perceive him. As much as Durant seems like a great guy, good guy, you know, um, no obvious flaws, uh, a nice personality, all that stuff, he did benefit from doing the things that whatever we want to call the establishment or cranky old sports writers deem the things to do. So little things like if you want to compare him to LeBron James, LeBron James skipped college. Cranky old sports writers don't like that. You know, Durant was one and done, but that was good. Texas was happy to have him. That's the thing you're supposed to do, right? Durant played 
played for a terrible team, was really good. Then that team went to a different city. So I guess he got some credit for like presenting continuity and for, you know, sticking with the team. And then, of course, unlike uh, LeBron James, who made the correct decision in every way to leave Cleveland and go to Miami, correct decision for himself, correct decision in terms of winning championships, which is what we're supposed to do. Durant, when faced with a similar choice, looked at his team and said, this is a winning organization. That was what Sam Presti did. That was what the organization around him did. You know, he benefited from that. So I think the whole Durant versus LeBron, I like like both of them. I think they're both killers. I mean, Durant's physical gifts, well, they both have physical gifts that are just unbelievable. You know, I do think Durant's height is a little underrated. <laughs> they both love their moms. They do love their moms. And I'll say this, LeBron's mom seems a little more problematic than uh, Durant's mom. <laughs> That's another factor. Durant's mom seems like a very nice lady. Worked for the government for a while, right? Uh, probably. Yeah. That seems like something that she might do. All right. The company Vibram will pay a $3.75 million settlement to people who bought its five-finger shoes and will also cease making claims that five-fingers footwear is effective in strengthening muscles or reducing injury. Isn't it five-toe footwear? They were pushing for the, for the finger thing. Maybe some confusion there. Yeah. They wanted Maybe they don't understand science at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, Stefan, they look like gloves for your feet. They're individual pouches for each toe. They were at the forefront of the minimalist running movement. They started selling the rubber shoes in 2006. And let me transport you back to that simpler time. Daniel Powder's Bad Day was the number one song in America. The number one movie at the year-end box office was Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. I didn't even know that was a movie. (laughs) And a bunch of toe-wiggling joggers began to swaddle their feet in rubber, rebelling against Nike and the other standard bearers of big running shoe. One of those rebels was my colleague, John Swansburg, who has arrived in the New York studio with his Vibram five fingers in tow. How are you, John? I'm doing great. They're not in tow yet. They're not in tow. So (laughs) our stunt for this segment is that you are going to put them on while we're discussing the Vibram Five Fingers. It's apparently an intensive process, right? Yeah, Mike, Pesca, are you going to do a play-by-play of this? Sure. All right, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to get some Velcro sound right on the mic. (laughs) There's a Velcro strap here. Ready? Oh, that's good. That's satisfying. You are looking live. He has gone with his right foot. He has crossed it over his left leg. He is struggling to get it in. Now, so, let me just yeah. inter- cut in here. So this is the problem. The, the five finger is now technically on my foot, but my, th- my big toe is snugly in my second toe sleeve, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is very uncomfortable. And I'm going to have to try to get the big toe into the big toe compartment. This is, is great radio. Yeah. Really struggling here. Yeah. I would have to say that along with the phrase, it's no day at the beach, fits like a glove is one of those <laughs> totally not apt phrases. Days at the also, beach. Also slept like a baby. Yeah. All right. So while we're waiting, uh, let me note that technically and Vibram- the wide varieties of rice, white on rice. I mean, come on. Sorry, go ahead. Vibram has admitted no- nothing, no fault. Um, they're denying any wrongdoing or conceding any actual potential fault or liability- they will not make going forward any claims that five fingers footwear are effective in strengthening muscles or preventing injury unless that representation is true, non-misleading, and is supported by competent and reliable scientific evidence. So maybe they just won't be making any claims at all. Uh, how are we doing uh, with the five fingers? The right five finger has been successfully applied to my f- right foot. 
but I'm still barefoot on the left. I don't know if you want me to go whole right, let's, hog here. Let's yeah. just uh, pause for now. And John, why don't you take us back to uh, the days when you bought the five fingers? That's fine. He has to put the left one on, though. I can't do this interview with a one shoe on, one shoe off guy. <laughs> well, we'll wait. We'll do that later in the segment. But John, All first, right, tell fine. us why you bought the five fingers. Well, I was. It was uh, a portion of of time in my life where I was exercising regularly, which is not something I always do. So the the uh, barefoot running thing kind of happened at a moment where I was working out probably three or four times a week, and so I was sort of an easy mark for the product because I was in the gym a lot, thinking about how to maximize my workout. I wasn't like doing every craze. I wasn't juice cleansing. I wasn't do, you know I wasn't doing everything. But let's not be absurd. Yeah, come on. But I did start reading about this barefoot running thing at a moment where I was trying to get in shape. And it, and it appealed to me just at a, purely as a, as a storyline, this idea that the human body is actually really well constructed to, you know, run along, catch things, hunt and gather. And that, in fact, the, you know, companies like Nike and other uh, sneaker manufacturers had sort of over-constructed sneakers and convinced the, you know, easily dupable American public that we needed these really sophisticated running shoes that were like really highly technical and had air in them or, you know, springs or whatever else would help you, you know, not <clears throat> break your leg when you were running or, or just improve your performance. So I kind of like, like the idea the same way I think that, you know, people who follow the caveman diet uh, find appealing this notion that we could return to some kind of prelapsarian moment in, a, in human evolution uh, to improve our lives in 2014. There's kind of a, like an appealing symbolism uh, to, to the whole idea. So I was like, yeah, I'm kind of curious about what that's like. I'll give it a shot. That was sort of my mindset. All right, first yeah. use of prelapsarian on this podcast. <laughs> John. <laughs> yes. So what was your experience with these? So I actually did a good amount of reading about the whole thing before I bought them. I wasn't like completely, you know, going into this blind. And from what I read at the time, it was, you know, Vibram was certainly making it seem like this was the best way to, to run for, certainly for a lot of people, even back then, there was a good amount of literature out there saying, eh, this may or may not be a good thing. The jury is still kind of out. There weren't a lot of studies. So I went into it somewhat circumspect. I wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm going to wear these to work. I'm going to you know, throw away all my sneakers. I'm going to start running 10 miles a day barefoot. I was like, let me ease into this. And in fact, I remember reading on the Vibram website that they said, like, you know, don't go from using some kind of like big chunky, you know, sneaker design to help your overpronating to go barefoot on day one. They're like, ease into it. So I tried to ease into it. I would I would strap them on to walk to go get my coffee in the morning, much to my <laughs> wife's chagrin. I would, you know, wear them on the beach, but I wasn't like first day jogging. And, and I felt like an idiot wearing them in public, but I also was kind of like, it was kind of fun. It was like, yeah, you, you do, it does feel different. It feels profoundly strange to walk down the streets of New York City with, without a shoe on. Uh, you do you feel the pavement in a different way. You you certainly pay more attention to where you're stepping because it never happened to me. But the idea of stepping in uh, dog feces in a vibrant five finger is truly uh, a horrifying. <laughs> you can really feel thing the texture with each individual toe. <laughs> yeah. These would yeah, not you, have been. You know you know what food that dog had for dinner. You know oh, that, this is a science diet. Okay, <laughs> these shoes were not meant. Man was not meant to not know what dog feces felt like on his foot. <laughs> These shoes would weird. not have been successful in the 1970s in New York. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely not. Is the That's right. Giuliani paved the way for Vibram in a weird way. Leash loss. 
So is the weirder thing about these shoes that you put your toes into the individual slots? I mean, that's what looks really weird from the outside. Or is the weirder thing that you're kind of wearing uh, like scuba gear on your foot like it were a regular shoe? It's actually probably neither. I mean, when, when I did start running in them, the weirdest thing is that so most people, myself included, tend to la- like have their they land on the heel of their foot mm-hmm. and the idea of of the vibram was to make sort of force you by making <laughs> by making it really painful to run uh, on your heel it forces you to kind of run in the ball of your foot mm-hmm. uh, and just strike the ground in a different way and so that was the thing that was most profoundly different for me so the first time I, I I'd worn them like I said a few times out and about in the city and then the first time I went for like a five I don't know, maybe probably more like a three mile run in them. The next day, even though I'd been working out and was as fit as probably as I've ever been, I was profoundly sore in my legs because I was just using completely different muscles to run. And that was the, that was the biggest shock. Like all of a sudden these like muscles in my calves and my, and my quads were just like pulled in a different way and I was sore, even though that was a, that was a mileage that I was doing on a regular basis. So it, They seem perfectly constructed to almost like a really good tarot card reader or someone who's a psychic and you call them you're like wait a minute your psychic ability is not working and they have like a great line of answer for everything they seem perfectly calibrated to give you an answer to all your questions about why they might not be working like wow my leg hurts ah it's supposed to hurt no it hurts in a bad way you're not doing it right (laughs) no I really think my leg is going to fall off you obviously haven't brought bought into the program enough you're gonna have to get even more expensive pairs of Vibrams. Like, never, you never thought that? Well, I mean, a little bit. I mean, I, the more I used them, the more, like, those muscles kind of got used to being yeah. flexed. And so I, it, it wasn't like every day I was running in them and I was, like, feeling miserable. But that first time, it was enough that I was like, oh, wow, like, I really am doing something different. Like, it, that, that, in a way, like, it did sell me a little bit on the concept because I felt like, oh, this is making me run in a profoundly different way and my body is telling me that. I wasn't thinking, oh, it's making me run a different way, and I'm, I'm like, you know, three days away from a stress fracture. But uh, did it lead to injury? No, I n- it never did. But to be honest, I never used the – I sort of used them somewhat sparingly. I never – I guess I never fully bought in yeah. to the, the five fingers, either because of the um, feeling vaguely embarrassed every time I put them on and, and not wanting to wear them all the time, or just because I felt like it was probably prudent to use them here and there. Uh, but the other thing I did, you know, they w- they prescribed on the again, I think it was on their website, you know, use it wearing them when you're walking or running, but doing all these toe and foot exercises. That was another sort of concept that I kind of bought into because they were they would sell this idea that you know you work out your arms when you go to the gym, you work out your your abs, <laughs> but do you work out your foot? And I was like, oh no, I don't. I was like, I can't believe of all these years I've never been working out my foot. So I like spent all this time at the gym, like you know, doing like standing up on my tippy toes and then going down, standing up on my tippy toes and going down, and then like flexing my foot. And like trying to like you know work the instep. I had like a really muscular instep for a while there. But uh, you know that that idea that somehow if you have a strong foot that you can like you know eat eat breakfast with your foot that that would you know help you be uh, a more health healthy and uh, well rounded. And if you're if you're wearing specimen. your vibrams, you can shake hands with people with your foot. <laughs> exactly. When they said when they said you work out your you work out your arms. You don't work out your knuckles. You don't work out your fingers. You don't work out your palms. What are you doing today? Yeah, delts and knuckles. <laughs> Vibram owes a great debt to Christopher McDougall and his book, Born to Run. We had McDougall on this podcast a couple of years ago, three years ago, actually. I think we all found him to be a bit of a snake oil salesman. And the 
this settlement by Vibram really seems to it? confirm a bit that, you know, he was he was a showman. And clearly in his interviews, he adopts that persona, you know, that this was something bigger than life. But now he's backed off a little bit from the idea that he was responsible for creating or helping to create a barefoot running craze. And I find this sort of you know, telling, but also kind of interesting. Now his line is that, you know, the running shoe companies and big running shoe, they're the ones who should have the burden of proof here. And that I I think, John, you're correct to be skeptical of a lot of these running shoes with their, you know, technology and the claims, you know, the pronation shoes or the motion control. I think those were shown also to, you know, have puffed up claims. Yeah, I think they Reebok were, had a big settlement. Yeah, several different companies, I think, have had to, yeah. to back down from claims. And and there is a uh, a way in which I feel like the entire running industrial complex is is somewhat complicit here, not necessarily in, in obviously in Vibram's uh, claiming things for their um, product that weren't true. But, you know, we've gotten to a point where there's a running store in my neighborhood in Brooklyn where, and there are many stores like this, uh, certainly in uh, major metropolitan areas where you don't just go and buy a running sneaker anymore. You go, you get on a treadmill with a you know a special running advisor. They take up, they make a short film of your running on the treadmill, and then they yeah, do like, like an analysis. Heat, sense, heat sensors for your feet to see where your arches are and where everything falls. Exactly, and then they you know they essentially prescribe a shoe for you. <laughs> They're right. like, I remember the last time I went to buy a pair of regular running sneakers, I went to that place uh, in my neighborhood, and they gave me this whole song and dance about the way I run and how I pronate and how this was the right shoe. And I, <laughs> they gave me this whole spiel and brought out like they presented the shoe that they had they had decided on for me, and I remember very sheepishly being like. I don't really like the colors of this one. <laughs> Did it look like the Homer, the car that Homer Simpson designs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, vaguely. It was, it was, and it was just really egregiously ugly. I mean, coming from someone who wore Vibram Five Fingers, I guess I don't really have any standing here to speak on aesthetic uh, uh, matters, but I just couldn't countenance wearing that running sneaker. And they were just like, it's not what is important, you know, how it looks. It's, it's fixing your overpronation and your, you know, forefoot. Well, you do have standing. It's just, uh, Cutting into your metatarsals. <laughs> Stefan, the settlements you're referring to were for like sketchers and shape ups, toning shoes, which are slightly different. That Not slightly, they're different than the motion control shoes. But I've also heard that the motion control shoes are overblown in their own way. But John, with this class action suit, you were probably entitled to a settlement. Um, but based on listening to you, it does not sound like you were really wronged by Vibram in any way. Um, it doesn't seem like you suffered any long-lasting damage. It sounds like you knew what you were getting into. Are you going to take the hard-earned money of the Italian Vibram shoe concern? Are you going to cash in your uh, your class action check? I've been thinking about this, and I'm I'm really torn about it. On the one hand... I would love to have that 50 bucks back, for sure. <laughs> because to be honest, this Vibram that I just uh, put on for uh, some Pesca could watch um, has been languishing, you know, in a closet for, for several months. I, you know, I, the, the novelty of the thing wore off. Uh, and then, and certainly now that I know that it's possible that this is a, you know, a, a not a very good thing for me to be uh, using 
particularly given my flat footedness, I feel like I am, if I did go whole hog with the Vibram, I, I might well eventually hurt myself. Some bone marrow edema in your future? Yeah. So, I, you know, the, the chances I'm ever going to wear this thing after this podcast, again, is very slim. So it is very tempting to, uh, you know, go to the, the website that's been set up for the class action lawsuit and, and uh, request my money. But as you said, I don't feel particularly wronged here. I feel like I went in with pretty with eyes pretty wide open. Um, it's certainly the case that I had read, you know, what Vibram had claimed for its shoe. I didn't entirely believe it, and I bought them anyway. So morally, I feel like I probably shouldn't get my money back. So uh, honestly, this is not an answer, but I'm still thinking about it. It probably depends <laughs> on, um, you know, whether I come across another pair of... Uh, uh, performance-enhancing sneakers or, or other workout wear in the next, you know, two weeks that I want to apply $50 towards, and, and that'll probably make the decision for me. John, I think you should keep the, the, the shoes. The 50 yeah. bucks is not worth it because you can pass these along to, for generations. Dad <laughs> wore these. Grandpa, <laughs> grandpa wore these ridiculous You know, I have to say, on one thing feet. that's cool about them is that they are machine washable. I could, you know, stick them in the washing machine and, and uh, pass them on to, a, you know, a grandkid and say... Give these a shot, and it wouldn't be that gross. I'd like to thank you and your foot odor for being on the podcast today. John, did you <laughs> succeed in uh, getting both shoes on? No, because um, it's very hard to stay uh, level with the mic. and get. Like, you can't slip your foot into a Vibram five-finger. You need your hands to get, particularly for me. I don't know if this is true of all wearers, but my pinky toe just, like, doesn't want to get into the pinky toe slot. Like, I really need to, like take it with my hand and like force it in there so there's i I am still one shoe on one shoe off it's a vestigial pain in the ass thing (laughs) yep john swansberg slate editorial director vibram five finger owner thank you (laughs) (laughs) anytime all right time for after balls let's do bowerman's the lesser known nike founder bill bowerman icon of big running shoe scourge of the minimalist foot craze mike do you have any uh, any final uh, commentary? Pre-Bowerman shoe removal commentary? So right now, Swansburg is reshotting. It's a process that probably takes as long as putting on the Vibram, and yet it's just so natural. We don't question <laughs> it. We don't question how long it takes to put on shoes and socks. I bet your toes get stuck in there a little bit when you're trying to take them off. Can't be very comfortable. I happen to know from a previous conversation that John is wearing shoes that are half size too small because they look cool. Am I right? No, these ones actually fit. Oh, these ones fit. (laughs) Yeah. So you know, this is a guy. This is a guy with a lot of shoe issues. All right. All right, (laughs) Mike. What's your Bowerman? I'd like to voice my displeasure about something that could be seen as good parenting, which is in the post-game press conferences, mostly of basketball, though it shows up in other sports, but basketball because they play seven-game series and everyone pays attention to press conferences and they do the thing where they, uh, they have a dais and, they ha- and it's kind of formalized. It's not just reporters gathering around a guy in a lo- the locker room. I mean, there's that too, but they do have the formalized press conferences. You'll often see players taking their kids onto the podium with them. And I am very pro-parenting. I'm very pro-involved parenting. I always like a chance to bring kids into the workplace. But I'm against this practice because I think many of the players are either using the child's shield or voicing their disdain and displeasure with having to take part in the process. And who's going to be churlish enough to stand up and say, you know, could you just answer the questions for these 10 minutes without the interjections of that cute tyke? I'll tell you who's going to be that churlish. It's me. So this happened after the Clippers game. A couple of their players showed up with cute little kids. 
And, you know, I'm not saying it's so calculated that they could dodge, a player can dodge a question by, like, nudging the kid under the table and having him say something cute. But, you know, I've been there. You ask the guy a question, the kid pauses at the microphone, says something into the microphone, kind of ruining the cut, and everyone laughs. Everyone always laughs. You know what? This is a professional situation. Show up to your post-game interview and then hug the kids. Kids interviews separate. I have an exception. If you've just won the Super Bowl, by all means, hug the child. I'm talking about game four of an NBA playoff game. Keep the kids off to the side. What do you think of that parenting decree, Stefan? I'm with you, Mike. I, I, I Really? Yeah, the, the child as prop is just, it's, it's just offensive. Yeah. <laughs> and I really don't, I don't think it's even done like that. I think mostly it's like, oh, I have to sit through another damn interview. Well, at least I'll have some kid time with me, but it's, it's kind of insulting. Or to it's also us, the, hey, the draggled professionals. Yeah. But it's also, my kid will enjoy this. This will be, he'll be on TV. We'll get yeah. to DVR it. He'll have these memories of being in front of the national media with dad when he was a player. You know yeah. what? Just leave the kids. I was also surprised that uh, Chris Paul's son mentioned that he didn't think that uh, Durant was getting the ball in prime spot, (laughs) and he thought they they should have utilized the pick and roll more. I thought he spoke out of school, but maybe that kid has a future. Well, he he was out of school. He was. Uh, Stefan, what is your Bowerman? The Spanish football club Villarreal was fined a whopping 12,000 euros after a fan threw a banana on the field at Barcelona's Dani Alves last month. Alves peeled it and took a bite, a planned reaction that led to an anti-racism social media campaign, complete with the hashtag Somos Todos Macacos, we are all monkeys. Throwing bananas at black athletes is not a new phenomenon, of course, and while it's happened on occasion in the United States, in the NHL at Wayne Simmons in 2011, in Major League Baseball at Adam Jones last Last year, it's far more a European problem, one that continues despite sportocratic pronouncement that there is no place in football for racism. While there is evidence, as you might expect, of racial abuse of black football players dating to the early 1900s, banana throwing seems to have begun in the 1960s when teams began signing black players. One of the first targets was Clyde Best of Bermuda, who joined West Ham United in 1968. Best was serenaded with monkey chants and showered with bananas on the road and at home. He blamed a group of West Ham supporters predominantly who were members of the emerging far-right National Front political party. In his autobiography, First Among Unequals, Viv Anderson, the first black player to play internationally for England, recalled joining Nottingham Forest as a 19-year-old in the mid-1970s. As he warmed up for one of his first games, he was pelted with bananas and other fruit. He retreated to the dugout where manager Brian Clough told him to get your fucking arse back out there and fetch me two pears and a banana. Anderson writes that Clough diffused the moment and subtly reminded him that he had to stare down the abuse he would face. After that, Anderson wrote, I made sure there was nothing, whatever people shouted, that would have a bearing on what I did. There were no black players in Scottish football until 1988 when Mark Walters joined Rangers. In his debut in the old firm Derby at Celtic's home ground, he was assaulted with monkey noises and bananas. Here's the call from the BBC's Archie McPherson. Well, the game was slightly held up while uh, some assortment of fruit was removed from the pitch. You can see it there, just in front of the jungle. And off we go into the second. McPherson wasn't alone in underplaying the episode. The local papers didn't mention what happened. Celtic condemned the fans' behavior, but the Scottish Football Association said nothing. Two weeks later, this time against the team Hearts at Tyne Castle, Walters again was pelted with fruit. Down in the corner, 
quite tragically I mean bananas are raining in on Walters and that is a PA announcement which must be unprecedented asking that objects are not thrown on to the pitch and I can count at least about a couple of dozen bananas and the whole thing is McPherson, the BBC announcer, regretted his lack of condemnation during the first game. After the second incident, though, he went on TV, held up a banana, and said that what he had witnessed made him ashamed to be Scottish. In a 2007 piece in the Scotsman newspaper, McPherson said that broadcasters were so brainwashed by religious divisions and sectarian violence at Celtic Glasgow derbies that he wasn't focused on the possibility of racial taunting. I wrongly saw the banana throwing as, in essence, puerile, an insipid form of the Celtic support's capacity for a wind-up. If more had been made of Walter's treatment at Celtic Park, he might not have had to put up with so much at Tyne Castle. Banana throwing continued through the 1980s in England and spread across Europe in the following decades. Groups like Football Against Racism in Europe have been formed. FIFA and UEFA periodically condemn fan behavior, ban individual spectators, and occasionally force teams to play in empty stadiums. But the episodes continue. On Sunday, fans of the Italian Serie A team Atalanta threw bananas at two AC Milan players, Kevin Constant and Nigel de Young. Josh, what's your Bowerman? 60 years ago last week, Englishman Roger Bannister became the first man to crack the four-minute barrier in the mile. Our friend David Epstein noted on Twitter that Bannister once said that when he leapt at the tape, he felt like an exploded light bulb with no will to live. He should have gone with exploded light bulbs. Well, too late. Next week. Uh, For a man who felt like he had no will to live, Bannister has lived a long time. He's still uh, alive. He turned 85 years old. This year. And the four minute mile is still as revered, that mark, um, as it was back then. Famous Roger Bannister. Everybody knows the guy. The mile run became a hugely popular sport um, right around the time the runners were inching towards this arbitrary barrier. So I think that's why the four minute mile became such a milestone. Combine that fact with, you know, we're just interested in records. We want to know who's the fastest in history at covering a particular uh, distance. But here is where the afterball takes a dramatic turn. What I don't understand is why are we so much less interested in the reverse? Who has covered the greatest distance in a particular time? Bannister is revered for cracking the four-minute barrier, but he was not celebrated for running the furthest anyone has ever run in four minutes. So in cycling, the hour record is actually very revered and very popular. It's who's gone the furthest in an hour. Everyone, or at least a few people in skin-tight outfits, are very excited that Switzerland's Fabian Consolara is going for the hour record uh, this coming August in Mexico. He'll try to beat the mark, which is currently 49.7 kilometers. But you don't hear as much about the hour record in running. Um, That didn't used to be the case. There's a great article titled Got an Hour to Spare by Andy Milroy that goes through the history of the hour record, which was a big deal um, at certain points in uh, human running history. A late 17th century butcher from Leeds named Edward or Edmund Preston was known as the first hour runner. Ed. Legend has it that his patron would disfigure the butcher so that he could hustle the competition, winning match races for money. He couldn't recognize the guy. He was disfigured. 150 years after that, Milroy writes that 30,000 people went to Hoboken. Uh, Hoboken. Who knew? In 1844, to watch a race, a race in which $1,000 was awarded to the man who ran the furthest in an hour. An American named John Gildersleeve took home the prize. He ran 10 miles and 955 yards. 
1861, an American named Lewis Bennett set the record. He went 11 miles and 970 yards in an hour. He was a member of the Eagle Tribe of the Seneca Nation. He was known as Deerfoot, and he ran while wearing moccasins on his feet. Forerunners of the Vibrant. Forerunners, five fingers. Five fingers. Moving along, an Englishman named Elf Shrub eventually broke the record. Not the... really. Elf Shrub? <laughs> Elf. Oh, Elf. Elf Shrub. Uh, the great Fen Pavo Nermi broke it in 1928. He got the mark up to 19,210 meters, which is almost 12 miles. Another legend, Czechoslovakia's Emil Zadopek, was the first to cross the 20,000-meter barrier in 1951. Um, in the 70s, women started getting some renown for doing the hour. Uh, Brenda Webb came close to 10 miles. Uh, she was an American in 1972. A West German broke the 10-mile mark. In 1975, um, the record is now 11 miles, 696 yards uh, by a Kenyan, which was set in 1998. The record has been broken, I think, uh, eight separate times since Zadipak did it. Uh, Haile Gebre Selassie has the current record, 21,285 meters, the great Ethiopian runner. He did it in 2007. But the hour race, nobody cares about this. It's not popular anymore. Um, there are some clubs that apparently do it. But I'm pushing for a return to the hour record. I think we should not be slaves to you know who ran the fastest 100 meters, 400 meters, 10,000 meters. I want to know who went the furthest in a minute, four minutes, and an hour. That's my message Olympic to you. Olympic sport. Should be an Olympic sport. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen to iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook, facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Casey Butterly. Our producer is Mike Folo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Members Elmo Beatty. Thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>